Thank you for your practice. Nice, nice to practice with you all. And again, good to see you all. And for anyone who joined our group after we started, welcome. I'm glad that you. I'm glad that you're here. I'm glad you were able to come. One of the things that some people like about the virtual format uh, is that uh, it's kind of like sitting in the back of the Dharma Hall. When there's a lot of people in the Dharma Hall, you can kind of sit in the back corner and have a lot of space and privacy. And I've always felt like truly that that's a, a good feature of virtual programs that people can keep their video camera off. Uh, and there's many different reasons why people do that. Um, we probably shouldn't uh, analyze another's uh, choices too much. So please know that um, that option is always available to you. And if you're comfortable or comfortable enough with your camera on, I would like to ask you or invite you to consider putting it on for, for the next portion because it does create a greater sense of being with other people if we can see each other. And uh, and, and the teacher has a sense of um, actually giving a talk to people. Like, we, I can see your faces. Um <clears throat> So I think that we come to meditation practice uh, individually for for different reasons, right? And and I, most of us would, I mean, maybe all of us would agree with that. Uh, some people come for peace and. You know, people come, they're new to meditation, and I say, well, why, you know, why do you want to learn meditation? What's, why is that important to you? And they say, well, I just, I, I want to be more peaceful, right? This sort of archetypal sense of spiritual practice offering peace. That's a word that resonates with me. Uh, I think I have a sense of what, I have some sense of what people mean when they report that. And I have some sense of peace within myself sometimes, even though not all the time. And it is something that practice has helped me experience more often. And some people say they want wisdom. They're very attracted to the the notion of a deeper understanding. The, the Buddha uh, often talked about this as penetrating delusion. And this trajectory of practice goes toward what is sometimes called awakening or enlightenment or Nibbana or maybe more commonly uh, Nirvana a very unique uh, place that is free from all forms of suffering. So some people hear these wisdom teachings and 
and they say, oh, that, you know, that's the time that I give to my meditation practice is for that. Hopefully, hopefully for that. And still other people are attracted to more broadly or generally the heart teachings like kindness and compassion, uh, joy and equanimity. There's a, um, there's a roughness. There's a, there's a toxicity to the world that is very palpable. And um, for those uh, for whom that is true, that toxicity or that, that roughness, the coarseness of life, um, the the overly masculine or, or toxic masculine that is not just in um, male bodies, but that can just really be a, very much a part of our how we do things together. Um, some people are 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 inspired by the possibility of something uh, gentler and more sensitive within themselves and uh, within the way we operate or work together or, or communicate or move amongst each other. In talking with a student uh, this week, uh, something really interesting came up, which I, I really appreciated and helped me relate to this question of why people come to practice a little bit differently they said well i think actually i'm 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 meditating to understand really what the possibilities are for meditation like i'm i'm meditating to understand why i'm meditating and i think that's true for so many of us at so many different times in our practice like we we come for a certain reason and then and and then either the dharma shows us that the possibilities are far greater or we learn something about ourselves that indicates a shift in intention or we see that these these three and i could have come up with a list of more than three but you know, for sake of uh, illustration, um, you know, people come to realize, oh, those three things aren't actually that different. I thought they were different. Um, But as I develop some understanding or capacity in one area, the other areas start to automatically come into focus, right? So the reason that initially draws us to practice is not necessarily uh, what keeps us practicing. Um, We might, as I mentioned, come to practice inspired by the tradition of insight and compelling notions of wisdom. And we might realize that some of our learned habits, our our personality, you could say, uh, benefit from the development of heart practices, such as loving kindness and compassion or the other way around we come to the dharma with an interest in compassion and we become deeply committed to the development of insight and understanding and so we really invest in in mindfulness meditation 
Vipassana, Vipassana meditation. And just as we begin to recognize the distinct uh, characteristics of uh, each of them as unique mind states, we also begin to see how they're supporting each other. Um, we learn that they're not as separate as we thought. They are uh, mutually beneficial. Uh, but more than that, they seem to mature alongside each other, almost as if they're on parallel tracks. Over the past weekend, I was teaching a, a retreat for Boston Meditation Center uh, on wisdom and compassion. So we were looking at these as parallel tracks, parallel paths of development. Um, and I began to think over the weekend about um, about about Dharma as a form of education. And it, that it, that's not a novel idea. Um, but we don't we don't really use that term necessarily. That term is kind of reserved for more conventionally uh, academic or school environments. And I forget exactly what happened, but it just became really clear that if if anything is an education, it's the path of Dharma, the path of learning meditation. An education uh, whereby we unlearn certain habits, certain uh, views and beliefs. In this, uh, this unlearning creates a new, really a new perceptual space in which the mind can see more clearly. So, before we begin Dharma practice, uh, our our seeing is cloudy, if you will, or partial, incomplete. And over time, through meditation, our vision becomes heightened and it becomes more attuned with the way things are. So wisdom is moving away from a lot of the views and beliefs that we've accumulated over the course of our life. The, the particular kind of understanding that comes from meditation can be described in, in many ways. Uh, and the, the, the Buddha had a few notable ways of articulating this, this shift. And one way he did that was to describe how the mind, through a curbing of reactivity and a strengthening of concentration, uh, over time is less apt to default to a set of mind states called the five hindrances. And those five hindrances are uh, like sensory desire, um, which, which just means the way we indulge the material or phenomenal world through the senses, you know, like we catch something out of the corner of our eyes and we just, we have to, we follow it. Um, you know, we we hear a really pleasant song on the radio 
and you know we, we put all our energy into it and then if we're really enjoying it when the song is over there's a kind of there's a, there's a momentary disappointment right because the there was this satisfaction through the sense door of hearing and even though we know the song must end as simple as that is there's a part of us that rejects that so that's that's what's implied by sensory desire that we're not able to make peace with even the most mundane facets of life somebody makes you a really nice meal and you're eating it and, and thoroughly enjoying the way it tastes and it tastes so good that even as you start to feel full and bloated you keep eating it's it's a similar it's just the 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 sensory uh, the pleasantness the sensory pleasantness uh, overrides some other kind of sensibility right so that's that's sensory and that's happening all the time um, at all sense doors and then another hindrance is uh, is um, dosa in Pali and uh, dosa is irritation anger ill will frustration irritability if I didn't already say that this sort of heated agitation heated agitation of the mind another hindrance is uh, is basically just a lack of energy like a dullness of the mind uh, dullness of the body tired lethargic disinterested unmotivated not enough energy not enough energy to to follow through right so that could be not enough energy to follow through on an important task could be not enough energy to follow through on a, a conversation that that's coming up that you're preparing for it could be stressful so there's just a sense of like I just don't think I have the energy to do that right now and it could be not enough energy to stay with the object of meditation right so this what we often hear as translated as sloth and torpor this is showing up all the time in many many different ways a mind and body that doesn't doesn't have enough energy and the fourth hindrance is restlessness. People who are new to meditation feel this almost constantly when they're meditating. And then people who have meditated for a long time still feel it from time to time. And the last hindrance is doubt. In a very traditional sense, uh, this was to doubt the teachings to doubt the teacher, to doubt the sangha, the, the group of other meditators. There's just a sense of like not knowing if it will help. Not knowing if coming to Thursday night at Boston Meditation Center uh, will really help you. Right? 
And there's also the self-doubt where our our doubt in the triple gem, the Buddha, Dharma, and the Sangha, um, starts to be revealed as a manifestation of the idea, I don't know if I can change. I don't know if I can change. So in this two-part model, as the conditions that give rise to the hindrances have less of a karmic force, the mind becomes more and more prone to a natural arising of what the Buddha called the awakening factors. And this is a list of seven uh, mind states um, that are, they're naturally occurring, right? They're like, we, we can experience these at any time. And we make certain efforts in meditation practice and in study of the Dharma to encourage them, right, to like to help them flourish. And they are what we call the fruit of practice. So as our meditation practice matures or develops, these seven uh, factors of mind, um, they... uh, they just present themselves more often and more more naturally. Uh, we we just find that uh, we are experiencing these mind states, and the first of which is mindfulness. Okay. The second is investigation, which um, after I go through this list, I'll spend the rest of the time talking about. The third is effort or energy, right? The third is bliss or rapture, a very heightened energetic quality that um, most people uh, most people really like uh, when they first start to experience it. Uh, it has a very electric quality, and then it starts to become kind of an obstacle. Uh, it's like it's almost like it's too much energy and then we learn to manage it and when we learn to manage it it becomes tranquility rapture turns into tranquility which is a a state of calm and stability in the mind and body and number six is concentration Um, the, the mind is able to stay it's almost like intention and effort come together and um, the attention is able to stay with the object of meditation, right? And as all these, and I'm talking about them in a linear way, they're not necessarily, uh, they don't necessarily unfold in order in this way. When they come together, when they mature, um, one of the greatest fruits known to meditation practice to people who meditate a lot is equanimity, upekka. A mind that is reliably and broadly stable, meaning that as more and more things happen that would have previously uh, triggered us or left us emotionally hurt or fragile, 
we're finding that the mind is uh, we're, we're finding that these things aren't happening and that the mind is okay the mind feels strong the mind feels strong the mind is not as easily impacted by external events okay so this this list is uh, of seven is also sometimes called the the um, the enlightenment factors the factors of enlightenment so they support as I mentioned earlier the development of awakening and they are the fruit of awakening they are what awakening looks like all of the different ways that the growth of understanding can be scribed um, a common feature of each of them is a gradual transition from a propensity a propensity for unskillful actions in body speech and mind to more skillful actions in body speech and mind so again we have this habit of reacting to life in a way that leaves us experiencing the five hindrances in the path of meditation is to move to create the conditions to move away from a habitual relationship with life such that the hindrances start to um the hindrances have less of a chance of rising um, which means the hindrances have less of a chance of, even though they're always latent, they're always a possibility, uh, less and less they're showing up as an active mind state that we have to tolerate uh, or, or bear. And as this happens, the awakening factors, um, they have a better chance of maturing. They have a better chance of showing up as the active mind state that we get to enjoy. And again, the second factor is investigation. Um, looking more closely at investigation can help us to understand what kind of education the Dharma really is. Uh, gaining a better understanding of the awakening factor of investigation can help us to recognize uh, to conceptualize what we are doing uh, and in turn it can provide us with important clues as to how to avoid certain mistakes um, certain mistaken views about what meditation is and thus therefore it helps our meditation practice to develop In the Pali language, this awakening factor is Dhamma Vichaya. Dhamma Vichaya, keen investigation of the Dhamma. Keen is, uh, uh, we, uh, keen is highly developed, highly developed. So um, a, high, a highly developed investigation of the Dhamma. So this investigation that goes hand in hand with insight is more refined than what we are capable of when we first start out on the path of meditation. It's a type of inner seeing. We have all heard these 
uh, cliches, but true um, references to meditation being an inner job or an inner path. Um, and it is. Uh, insight is a kind of an inner seeing. Like our eyes are, not that everybody meditates with their eyes closed, but uh, even if your eyes were closed, um, there's this uh, seeing of how things work, seeing how when I do X, the result is Y. A sense of like really, really getting it, like just really getting it. So, you know, we, we do this, uh, this, this work, this, this Dharma, this meditation, we do it ourselves. Uh, it's very personal, and yet we gain universal insights that help us understand and relate to others better. Help us relate to ourselves better, too. It plays a role in both wisdom and developing the heart qualities of wisdom and kindness. So I'll talk next about the qualities or characteristics of investigation. Dhamma Vichaya. Taken as a whole, the aspects of investigation mean that investigation is not necessarily as we, uh, it's, it's not necessarily thinking as we conventionally perceive of it. Many of you have heard me say that probably hundreds of times. It is a new way of looking, and it is a new way of learning. And it has very different results than uh, analysis or conjecture. Um, Venerable Sayadaw Uindaka, who uh, some of you have had the opportunity to practice with from uh, Myanmar, points out that, quote, when things are investigated and examined, understanding and knowledge arise, end quote. So this idea of investigation is pointing directly toward liberating insight, the deepest knowledge that can come through meditation practice. So again, this might sound obvious, um, though Sayadaw is making an important point in distinguishing Dhamma Vichaya from other forms of thinking. Putting aside for a moment the obvious fact that through thinking we invent many things and solve many problems, a lot of mental activity actually causes distress and suffering. A lot of mental activity causes stress and suffering. The particular knowledge or insight implied by investigation in which Sayada Uindaka is pointing toward falls into three particular modes of discernment, or again, uh, what we call seeing, three modes of seeing. The first mode is understanding the difference between mental and physical phenomena. Mental phenomena is nama in the Pali, N-A-M-A, nama. And physical phenomena is rupa, nama and rupa, understanding the difference between nama and rupa. 
I think with a lot of Dharma uh, teachings, we hear something like this and, you know, it, it's kind of lost on us, right? It goes over our head, like, of course, there's a difference between mind and body. Um, however, this teaching is so important um, to a proper understanding of the Dhamma that on one of Sayadaw's trips to the United States when we were teaching a retreat together, he instructed the, the people in the retreat to note or label Nama and Rupa throughout almost the whole retreat, all day long. Right? He said, if you notice a mental activity, just acknowledge not Nama, just acknowledge that the mind is activated. Just acknowledge that you're aware of mental activity. And likewise to do the same for bodily experience. This could be the topic of another talk, and I, I won't be able to get into it fully tonight, but this is going to, as our practice uh, becomes more and more refined, um, give us a really close, uh, a really close and accurate um, look at cause and effect. Right? And when we begin to develop a, 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 an ability to see cause and effect, what we're also seeing is, is the self, the, the, the sort of selfing mechanism that can be changed, it can be understood, changed, ultimately eliminated, which creates a kind of emotional and psychological balance in the mind. The second uh, distinct um, um, uh, mode of discernment, uh, type, type of seeing, is to understand the three characteristics of impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and non-self. And to understand how these three how these three mental states work together to keep each other um, intact, right? So um, not seeing or understanding the characteristics of impermanence or unsatisfactoriness keep the self intact, right? A sense of um, me being set off from others in the world around me. And there's a kind of underlying anxiety of uh, not being in control of everything, of myself, the world, um, because I'm separate from it. How can I control anything if ultimately I'm separate from it, right? This is the underlying problem that we're trying to resolve. It's a perceptual problem. And the third mode of discernment is to understand the Four Noble, to understand and see, to study, see, and understand the Four Noble Truths. The truth of unsatisfactoriness, the truth of craving, the truth of the alleviation of craving, and 
the truth of the way to experience the alleviation of suffering. So something to point out about Dhamma Vichaya is that while it suggests a way of approaching each moment uh, with a keen eye of observation, what that eye of observation sees as inseparable, what that eye of observation sees is inseparable from wisdom itself. This makes the point that wisdom is a type of seeing. It's, it's a way of perceiving whatever arises in the mind and body just as they are at their most fundamental nature. Um, seeing things as they are really means to see without added conceptual layers and without the dualistic vantage point of me and mine. Um, we don't see things, if you will. Rather, things are known. We don't see things. We don't see things. Rather, things are known. Uh, Piyadasi Tara uh, wrote, quote, Through keen investigation, one understands that all compounded things pass through the inconceivably rapid moments of upada, titi, and banga, of arising, reaching a peak, and ceasing, just as a river in flood sweeps to a climax and fades away. The whole universe is constantly changing, not remaining the same for two consecutive moments. All things, in fact, are subjected to causes, conditions, and effects. End quote. So <laughs> this type of knowledge, um, investigation, it's, uh, it's not going to help you make a better grilled cheese sandwich. It, it's, it's, um, it won't explain why you get uncomfortable in social situations, at least not in a relative or clinical or behavioral way. It's not going to help you address climate issues. So it's, it's, it's not solving daily problems in the way that we normally try to solve them. And it, and it, it actually frees something else up. It, it allows us to do something very different, which is that it prepares us to deal internally with all of the world's difficulties, right? So in meditation practice, we choose to temporarily not deal with 99% of the world's problems in a conventional way so that we develop fundamentally a very sound, ancient, but super contemporary, should it arise, super relevant uh, set of skills that we can apply to everything. The, the, one of the things we have to learn is that we simply spend too much time trying to solve observable problems with conventional ways, which leaves us internally stressed, anxious, suffering. One concern, uh, you know, when we're, when we're honest about 
what this kind of seeing doesn't directly and immediately resolve. One concern for some meditators um, when this point comes up is that it might leave them numb, uh, might leave them numb to the world's problems or maybe not responsive to those problems. However, I, I don't think that this is the case at all. I don't personally feel that this is something that we need to worry about. The function of Dhamma Vichaya um, is the function of illumination. It illuminates the object like a lamp illuminates an object in a dimly lit room. So in this example, the dimly lit room represents our perception. When investigation is present, we can see the environment better and the things within that environment. We don't mistake a floor lamp for a person. We don't mistake an extension cord as a threatening, a threatening snake. In the manifestation of Dhamma Vichaya um, is said to be non-bewilderment. Non-bewilderment. Bewil bewildered is um, perplexed, confused. So to say that investigation manifests as non-bewilderment is to say that in any moment that Dhamma Vichaya is present, avidya or ignorance is absent. We are not perplexed, we are not confused, we are not doubtful. Seeing clearly, we could say, has the capacity to increase our confidence. Not arrogance, not arrogance, but rather a sense of trusting ourselves. Again, uh, referring to Sayada Uindaka, he says, it is like a skilled and knowledgeable guide who can take visitors from all corners of the world to any place they want to see. The guide skills are not limited to showing the way. They also illuminate different places along the way. Without a guide, we can easily get lost because it is rather difficult to stay on the right path. With a guide, we stay on the right road and get the correct information so we can reach the desired destination quickly and safely, quickly and safely. So the, the guide uh, referenced here, of course, is not another person. It's not even another teacher, but our own ability to interpret the inner landscape of our own, of our own mind. And I'm going to leave you tonight with a short passage from the Dhammapada. Wisdom springs from meditation. Without meditation, wisdom wanes. Having known these two paths of progress and decline, let one so conduct oneself that one's wisdom may increase.